0: Grateful to be with you this morning and uh, to be opening the scriptures with you. We are going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to 2 Peter chapter 2. By the way, if you're new to the Bible, uh, you haven't been around it very often, you can find 2 Peter in the table of contents. It's going to be about 90% towards the back of your Bible, and you're looking for two number two, and then Peter, and we're going to be in the second chapter. The big numbers are chapter numbers, little numbers that look like footnotes. Sometimes they're actually footnotes, but mostly they're verse numbers. So we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, and while you're turning there, I think it's helpful for us to remember that 2 Peter is a letter of warning. You know, First Peter, the apostle Peter wrote a letter to a church telling them that persecution was going to come from outside of the church. That Satan, in effect, was like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He was ready to pounce on the church. Well, Second Peter, then, is a letter in which Peter reminds the church not only is he a lion, but he's also like a wolf. He sneaks in among the flock of God before he attacks. And so much of Second Peter deals with the concept of false teachers and false teaching. So he's warning them that some people might come Actually, let me rephrase that, because it's not might, it's not could, that some people will come, and they will bring with them false ideas, false beliefs, and false doctrines about God, about his gospel, and about our relationship to him. So, uh, last week, Jim preached from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and he said, uh, where it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you So what has happened is, in the first three verses, Peter introduces this concept that false teachers will come, and then Peter, as he's writing this letter, presumes that we all have a question, and so he pauses in verse 3, and verses 4 through 10 then are going to be answering the question he thinks we have as we read his letter. So next week, we're going to pick up in verse, the second half of verse 10, going through verse 16, and we're going to pick up the same flow from verse 3. But right now, Peter's going to enter into a sidebar where he engages in trying to answer our question. The question he thinks we have is, why would God allow false teachers to continue? Why is God so slow to act in relationship to these false teachers? I mean, when they show up, they lead people astray. We might even actually add another question to, uh, for our day that Peter would have assumed and Peter's audience would have assumed, and that's, why does God judge it all? Aren't we all just trying to get along? Aren't we all just trying to figure it out? Do we all really, any one of us, really know what's true? And so what I want to do this morning is as we look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, I want to answer those three questions. I want to answer the question: Why does it seem that God is slow to judge false teachers? I want to answer the question: Why does it seem why does God even judge at all? And then I want to add in this question: What should we do while we await God's judgment? How do we respond? What do we do? Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself here, so let me pray for us this morning, and then we will get into the scriptures. Father in heaven. Holy is your name, as we have just sung. You are a holy God. We ask, Lord, that this church, this little outpost of your kingdom, might hear from your word this morning, not from mine. Lord, we ask that your spirit, not merely mine, speaks this morning. We ask that your will for us in relationship to our pursuit of spiritual teachings and spiritual truth might be made known in this text. Father, we assert that you are God, you are our salvation and our shield, that your scriptures are sufficient for us to know you, for us to know your will for us, and for us to live in light of it. We ask forgiveness for any false teaching that we might believe in our hearts, and we ask forgiveness for are fallen desires that lead us into or entice us by this false teaching. And Lord as well, we pray for those who believe false teaching, and we ask for compassionate hearts towards them. And so Lord, I ask that the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth, be honoring in your sight this morning. I ask that they be compassionate to those who struggle with false teaching so, Father, we pray that, that you be present with us, guiding us into your truth as we look at your word today. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, like I said... In Second Peter chapter 2, he begins with this explanation that te- false teachers will come in. And then he closes verse 3 saying, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. And then what he does now is he unpacks what he means by that. And he says, it's not asleep like the fallen angels. It's not asleep like the generation of Noah. It's not asleep like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Peter thinks these three examples help us understand how God's judgment does, in fact, come. How God's judgment is not asleep, it is not slow, it is in right timing. So let's look at these three examples and sort of unpack them a little bit so that we are all on the same page as we think about those three questions. So, example one is fallen angels. You know, it's, it's a little bit hard to talk about angels because, uh, well, just angels general, not just fallen angels. Fallen angels is a whole other story. Uh, but primarily that's because the Bible isn't first and foremost concerned with angels. There's no portion of the Bible where it just explains outright what angels are, what angels are for. What you need to do is you need to piece things together from different scriptures. The reason for that is the Bible is primarily concerned with our relationship with God and God's work in history to save for himself a people. And so what the Bible tells us about angels only comes clear when those two things touch. And when the authors of Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit think, I need to explain this about angels such that they understand what's going on in the story. So there's a lot of places we could look to unpack different things. I think there's some primary texts, uh, Revelation 9. 13 through 15, Revelation 12, 7 through 9, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Luke 10, 17 through 20. We don't have time to unpack these all, and I know some of you are note takers, so I'm going to repeat them in one second again. But we don't have time to unpack them all, so I'm going to summarize them really quickly so that we can kind of have an understanding of what angels are for, what Peter is referring to. So, again, those texts are Revelation 9, 13 through 15. Revelation 12, 7-9, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and Luke ten seventeen through 20 And in brief, what I think these explain is that God created the angels to serve him. But at some point in the past, one of the angels, known as the dragon in Revelation 12, led a rebellion of approximately one-third of the angels against God and the rest of the angels. That dragon, we are told, is the same character who sneaks into the Garden of Eden and tempts Adam and Eve. And we're also told he's the same character who throughout Scripture is picked up with the name Satan or the devil, meaning the adversary and the deceiver. And so this this character leads one-third of the angels in a battle against God and his angels. In fact, let me be specific because sometimes you run into people who they have a lot of fear over who the devil is. And when they think about the metaphysics of the cosmic world and how everything works, they think there's God, and then on equal or similar footing, there's the devil. But that's actually not the picture the Bible paints. You see, in Revelation 12, when it's talking about this event, this war between the angels, it explains that it wasn't God's primary champion the Son of God, Jesus, who we meet in the Gospels. It wasn't him who came out and defeated Satan, the dragon. It actually says that God sent, he dispatched, the archangel Michael to fight against him. So Michael casts Satan out of heaven, casts the dragon out of heaven, which is fascinating because that means that God hasn't even flexed his muscle yet. He was like, well, you know, a third of the angels are at war. Michael, go deal with it. Uh He hasn't even really engaged at this point. So what I want you to hear from that is, we, like we sang before, have no need to fear, in some final sense, the devil. For it was another fellow angel that defeated him originally in the war in heaven. And so what happens is, the the dragon, the devil, Satan, fall with one-third of the angels. Some are cast to earth such that they actually encounter Jesus as he wanders around in his ministry. Some, however, are bound. They are put someplace dark, gloomy, a dungeon of sorts. That's what 2 Peter is getting at here. For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committing them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Peter's saying, there's a coming judgment, and some of these fallen angels have been bound up awaiting that time. Yes, some are wandering around, some encounter Christ, but as well, there are some who have been bound awaiting this time of final judgment. Peter then moves on to his second example, the flood generation. And he says... I lost my place. Uh, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You see, Peter, he gets a bit more practical, a bit more familiar here. He enters into the story of Genesis and he says, There was a time in which the ungodly expanded. You know, the narrative of Scripture is that God created this world at peace with Him, in relationship with Him. And then, after temptation, humanity fell and sin entered the world. And from that point forward, man, at birth, is both a sinner by nature and choice, we are told. Here's what our doctrine statement for the EFCA says about this. We believe that God created Adam and Eve in His image, but they sinned when tempted by Satan. In union with Adam, human beings are sinners by nature and choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled and renewed. So once sin enters the world, it corrupts everything. And it moves through the population such that in Genesis 3 you have sin enter, in Genesis 4 you have a brother kill another brother, and by Genesis 6 here's how the world Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that the intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The result of this is that God judges the world. He sends this deluge, a flood upon the world to cleanse it from the ungodly. And then Peter moves on his third example, Sodom and Gomorrah. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And so Peter explains God has judged the angels, God has judged Noah's generation, God even judged these cities that Genesis 19, which tells us the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, describes this way says God's judgment was that the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and that he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. That's what Peter refers to in this text as condemning them to extinction. So Peter gives these three examples because, in effect, he hears us thinking What is God going to do about this? What do we do with false teachers? Why would God allow them? And in in essence, Peter's answer is this, that in the narrative of God's pursuit of humanity, you do not get 20 chapters into the story before you have God judge on a cosmic level, on a global level, and on a metropolitan level. You aren't 20 chapters into a story that has 1,189 chapters before God has judged three types of things, two groups of people, one group of angels, on three different scales. Notice the concentric circles there. Cosmic, the angels in heaven. Global, the flood. Metropolitan, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. If this is following a pattern that Peter is trying to lay out, you could say the pattern is he says A, he says B, he says C, we all respond with D. What would the D part of the pattern be? If God can judge cosmically, globally, metropolitanly, can he not also judge ecclesiologically in the church? And so Peter is saying do not be worried about false teachers. They will come and God will judge them. He is not slow to judge. We might think that he is slow. We might ask, why is this judgment so slow? Why does it take so long? There are false teachers in every age. They seem to come out of nowhere. They build large platforms, and then they disappear. And often, we don't hear anything negative about them. Sure, sometimes they blow up their lives, but frequently, they seem to just retire or fade off without much by way that would let us know that God is up in heaven judging them. So why does it seem that God is slow to judge? Well, I think that's because there are two kinds of false teachers, much like there are two kinds of lost people. Right? There's there's lost people, people who do not know Christ, who they fit a sort of paradigm, a stereotype, right? They're licentious, they're worldly, they have desires uh, that would run contrary to Scripture. We look at their lives on the outside and we go, oh yeah, that guy's, that guy's clearly lost. He denies Christ. Everything about his life says that he doesn't believe. But I think there's also a second type of false teacher, just like there's a second type of lost person. Because there's a lost person, somebody who doesn't know Jesus, who from, for all intents and purposes to our outside culture looks totally fine. You know, they don't break any laws. They pay their taxes. They wear collared shirts. They buy fair trade coffee, and they don't post obnoxious things on social media. They look fine to the outside world. And yet, they, because they do not know Jesus, are also lost. I think this is one of the reasons why God does not judge false teachers when we wish he would judge them. Why, to us, he seems so slow to act. Let me give you an example. Around 2012, if memory serves, I was a student at Biola University. And Biola University, uh, it's a Christian school. The B in Biola stands for Bible, Bible Institute of Los Angeles, that's the name. So I was a student at Biola University, and they had a chapel. And a man spoke at the chapel. His name was Phil Vischer. Now, uh, I was not um, inducted into evangelical subculture. Uh, I had not yet been commissioned or understood much about uh, how you grew up in the church, so I had no idea who Phil Vischer was. After asking around, best I could figure, is he was the creator of a cartoon show for kids that attempted to teach them the biblical worldview uh, through the medium of talking fruits and vegetables, which, I mean it's for kids, that's why it doesn't make sense. But uh, you probably have heard of it, or you might have, uh, Veggie Tales is the name of it. So Phil Vischer came, and he spoke at chapel, and I thought this was an extremely courageous thing to do when I understood who he was, because he was speaking to a room full of college students, and just out of college, just graduated from college, and he he was speaking to people who, for the last decade, many of them had been catechized and taught on the basis of his cartoons. And he said that he was sorry and that he needed to repent because many of the VeggieTale cartoons did not actually, upon reflection, teach the Christian faith. In fact, Phil Vischer said, if you re-watch them, and as he looked at them again a second time, he came to realize that they taught moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is a false theology that Jim mentioned last week. Uh, It has three major tenets. God exists, deism. God wants you to be good, moralism. And if you are good, then God will grant you that which you think will make you happy, which we could call therapeuticism which I think is a word I just made up, but it fits. So, moralistic therapeutic deism. God exists. He wants you to be good. If you are good, he will give you what you want in order to be happy. The problem with that is that that actually flips the entire gospel on its head. The gospel is not a message about whether or not you're good enough. The the gospel is not a message about how God can provide what you want to be happy. The gospel is fundamentally a message about how while we were still sinners, while we were not good enough, while we were enemies of God, Jesus Christ died for us. God did what we could not do. The Son of God became a Son of Man so that in his work many sons of men could become sons of God. That is the gospel. It is not if you clean yourself up and look tidy enough on Sunday morning, he blesses you with a good life. It is that he came and died for you. So Phil Vischer looked at his old episodes of Veggie Tales. I believe at this point he was trying to uh, remake the series. And so he kind of went through them to figure out what stories these various fruits and vegetables had already reenacted. And he decided, this is actually not the gospel. I am teaching these kids moralistic, therapeutic deism. And he repented of that false belief, and he turned, and he started trying to go a different way. I think that's one of the reasons why it seems to us that God is slow to act, because false teachers, though they have lots of influence, though they will lead people astray, they are still broken, fallen people who God has compassion on. Not all of them turn back. Not many of them repent. But do we not also believe in a God who leaves the 99 to find the one? And so sometimes it seems to us that God is slow. But keep this in mind, we'll touch on this passage when we get further into 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3:9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is God slow by our outside standards? He is not slow, he is patient because he desires all to be saved. He is desirous of our repentance. But maybe, like I said, I've gotten ahead of myself because maybe the problem is that you don't read these passages and think, why does God seem so slow? You read these passages and you think, why does God judge at all? I mean, aren't we all trying to get along? I don't know about you, but I'm uh, I'm a football fan. Uh, I'm in Arizona, so I'm out of my home state where I've grown up, so I apologize in advance, but I'm a 49ers fan. You guys, if you're Cardinals fans, you have a better record than us, so you shouldn't be offended. Uh, But I'm a 49ers fan, and there's this old trope with the football where when you would watch a football game, there would be one dude in the back of every end zone with a clown wig on for some not discernible reason and a poster board that in block letters said, John 3.16. And every time I see that guy, it's a different guy at each stadium, I presume, because there's lots of games and they're in lots of cities. But every time you see one of those poster board evangelists, I'm always mildly surprised that it doesn't read Matthew 7-1 across it. Because Matthew 7-1 is a passage that more frequently and more, uh, at least in terms of what we would think about our culture, captures what we believe. Matthew 7-1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. I'm always surprised that that's not the first Bible verse that a lot of people learn in America because we like to think of ourselves as a live and let live culture. We like to think that we don't pass judgment on people and they don't pass judgment on us. And that's what good people do. We don't judge each other. So why then would God judge? You know, there's actually people who have uh, influence and who have had major effects on the church who would say not only should God not judge, but it's actually wrong for God to judge. One of these recently passed away, uh, the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He said, I would not worship a God who is homophobic. I would refuse to go to a homophobic heaven. No, I would say, sorry, I'd much rather go to the other place. Or he said on another occasion, if God is opposed to homosexuality, then I do not worship that God. Now, there's a big and a broad conversation to have about what the scriptures teach about homosexuality. We think it's pretty clear. Although there are some times where you have to add some nuance, there are some verses that you have to unpack. But think about what Archbishop Desmond Tutu said in that. When he said that, he didn't say, I don't think the Bible condemns homosexuality. He said, if a all-good, all-wise, all-perfect, all-powerful God condemns homosexuality, then I don't want to be with him. What is he doing there? He's not, he's not staying, not judging. He's actually casting judgment at that point upon God. Or we could say, getting off just the theme of homosexuality, there was a Protestant minister by the name of Brian McLaren who used to be pretty popular in certain circles, and he said this about the flood. He said, a God who depicted in the flood narrative is profoundly disturbing, and I quote, I cannot defend the view of God in Noah's story as morally acceptable, ethically satisfying, or theologically mature. Sorry, what God of Genesis 6 is not morally acceptable, ethically satisfying, theologically mature? These are guys in the church. This is not Richard Dawkins. This is not an atheist philosophy professor. This is not a biologist who makes videos against the church. These are people who held positions in the church of high authority, people who published books as Christians, people who were employed by Christian organizations. These are, this is not the lion waiting to pounce. This is the wolf having snuck in. And they would say, it is wrong for God to judge. So why does God judge? Because it seems pretty clear to me as I look at the scriptures, I see judgment frequently in it. You know, I think to a certain extent it has to do with the fact that there's, there's two ways to deny what scripture teaches. One way to deny what scripture teaches is to make a plausible attempt at another interpretation. This is actually what generally happens with the issues of homosexuality or issues that are close to the heart of our culture, is they say, oh, no, no, that passage in Scripture doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean what it looks like it says. If you actually understood this tidbit about Greco-Roman culture or this recent archaeological discovery, then you would know that's not what it says. That's not what God means. One of my problems with that is that what that means is that the Bible is not sufficient. What that means is that if I had, in order to understand what God wants for my life, I have to have the Bible plus a subscription to Archaeological Digest. I have to have the Bible plus a PhD in ancient Near East history. If we actually believe that the scripture is sufficient for our lives, then we have to believe what's on the page. And what I mean by that is that historical studies, cultural studies, archaeological discoveries help us to understand the Bible, but they cannot fundamentally change the words on the page of the Bible. And think about it. If they do, what we are saying is that God for centuries, until that discovery took place or that historical paper was written, God for centuries left his church, his people, without an accurate witness to his will that sounds to me like a capricious God. That sounds to me like an arbitrary God. Instead, what I think we have to do is look at Scripture. But that's not the only way in which people often go astray. A second way is that they presume, and this is what McLaren and Archbishop Tutu were doing, they presume they have the moral high ground and then they cast judgment upon God. The author C.S. Lewis referred to this as putting God in the dock, which is the idea that in a British judge's chamber, you had the bench where the judge sits, and then you had a dock where the person who was being cross-examined sat. And he says, so often we put God in a dock. Here's what Lewis wrote. The ancient man approached God as an accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge, and God is in the dock. Don't worry, he's a quite kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being a God who permits war, poverty, and disease, we could also add who floods the world and judges it, then he, the modern man, is ready to listen. The trial may even end with God's acquittal. But the important thing to realize is that we, that man, is on the bench and God is in the dock. This is what McLaren and the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu were playing at. I've thought about how I would phrase this, but I find that very few people did it better than A.W. Tozer. In his book, Knowledge of the Holy, Tozer writes, Among the sins which a human heart is prone... Hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom liable on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is. In itself, this is a monstrous sin. And it substitutes for the true God, one made after its own likeness. That is that we refashion God in our likeness. Always this God will conform to the image of the one who created it. He will be base or pure, cruel or kind, according to the moral state of the mind from which it emerges. Tozer gets right at the heart of the problem here, is that when we believe God doesn't judge, what we are doing is we are rewriting God's character. We then end up worshiping a God other than the God of the Scriptures. Here's the thing, if I were to try and tell you without the scriptures what I think God is like, I will get something wrong. I will be a false teacher. When we craft images of God, we miss something. God is so multifaceted. His character is unchanging, but it is complex when we think about it because it goes beyond what we are used to. And so what ends up happening is if we try and recreate God, we create something false. And from a false God will come an entire false theology and a false religion. One that we encounter today frequently is called progressive Christianity. This has actually been around for quite some time. In fact, uh, a long-deceased theologian named H. Richard Niebuhr summarized the belief of progressive Christianity this way. He says, a God without wrath... Brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. So, why does God judge? God judges for two reasons. First, God judges, as we have already sung and heard today, because He is holy. It's one of the first things that we profess. If you look again at this first doctrine, We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy. The first thing we want to profess about God after saying how many there are and his relationship to us, creator creation, is that the fundamental attribute of God's character is holy. Now, holy means two different things. Holy can mean set apart or other than. This is the idea that God is creator and everything else is creation. Therefore, God is other than. He is different than everything we encounter in this world because everything we encounter in this world came from him. There was a point where everything you encounter in the world did not exist. It was created. But God is not like that. God is creator, not creation. He has no beginning and he will have no end. And because of that, he is other than what we normally encounter. Here's how the scriptures describe it. In Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Or the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 2, 2, There is none holy like the Lord for there is none beside you there is no rock like our god rock like a foundation there is nothing on which to build your life like our god or second samuel 7:22 therefore you are great o lord god for there is none like you there is no god beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears King David, there, is saying he has encountered many things. He has heard many things. Lots of philosophies have come to him. Lots of theologies have been said to him. And yet he has never heard one theology, philosophy, or sentiment that rivals that about what he's heard about God. And so, holiness can mean he is other than, he is set apart. But holiness also points to God's moral purity. You know, we also see this in 1 Peter 2.22, and this, by the way, is written by a man who looked at Jesus Christ and called him the Holy One of God. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. You could not find a word of Jesus' mouth that was not holy and utterly true. And you could not go back. If there was a video recording all of Jesus' life, you could not go back and find one point where he sinned. Morally pure. Or what about this one? In 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Or Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake... He made him, that's God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus did not know what it was like to sin, but God made him sinful. How and why? He made him sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only sin which Christ personally knew was yours and my sin on his shoulders such that he could atone for ours. God is holy that he is set apart, he is other than, and God is holy in that he is morally perfect, morally good in a way in which we cannot really imagine. And by the way, when I talk about holiness, we could have an entire theology class on this, we could get into this academically and we can think about this, but at rock bottom, when we think about God's holiness, there is a part of us inside that should shake with terror. Because God judges because he is holy. Which is why one of the other things that is fundamental to understand about God is not just that he is holy, but that he is not only loving, but the source of all love. You see, the second reason God judges is because he loves us. One of my favorite doctrines in all of Scripture is called the simplicity of God. And what that means is that God is a simple being. You can't divide him up. Which fundamentally, one of the practical applications of that is that you cannot read the scriptures, look at a particular story in the Bible and go, this story is a story about God's judgment. Oh, and this story over here, this story is about God's love and grace. He is simple. All of his characteristics are functioning at the same time, in the same acts. You know the difference between them? It's our relationship to him in those acts. Because I actually believe this with the bottom of my heart, that the only way you could say, I don't believe in a God that judges, and in fact I think it would be wrong for God to judge something, is if you don't actually believe the characters that this book talks about were real people. Think about this. Do you realize how the generation of Noah was described? Do you realize what the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were like? In Genesis six, I lost in my notes, so I'm just going to flip there in my Bible. In Genesis six five, it describes them as evil continually, always. Genesis is at the beginning, Second Peter was at the end. It took me a little while. Uh, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of his of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually the lord regretted that he had made man and it grieved him to the heart think about what that is saying and think about noah a father and a husband trying to raise kids trying to protect and provide for his family in a culture where the thoughts of people's hearts hearts the thoughts of people's hearts are only evil continually every intention that comes into the heart of man evil wicked and there are no restraining laws like don't kill, don't rape, don't steal that guy's family and sell them into slavery. There's a film made a few years ago by Darren Aronofsky based off of the, the story of Noah. It is a horrifically heretical film, but when Darren Aronofsky wrote it, to his credit, he said, I'm going to make the least biblical biblical film ever made. So when you have that goal, you don't expect a ton of accuracy. But there is one scene immensely accurate. And that is at one point, there is a picture of what the world looked like in the camp awaiting outside of Noah and his family. And as the scene goes through, it's very quick, but if you slow down the camera, you see violence, you see murder, you see rape, you see slavery, you see oppression. That's actually what Moses is describing in Genesis, That's what it looks like when nothing is there to restrain you and the thoughts of your heart are only evil continually, always. Why does God judge? Why a deluge of water upon the world? That could be seen as this massive act of judgment upon sin unless you're Noah. And then it's not some cold, capricious God off in the distance punishing you for something. It is your loving, heavenly Father saving you from what is around you. Can you imagine trying to raise kids in that world? It shouldn't be all that difficult because, by the way, the thoughts of man's hearts have not changed all that much. All you have to do is look at places where we do not have the restraining effects of a law that, by the way, is based off of the scriptural understanding of who people are. And you see these kinds of things all over the place. What about Lot and Sodom? We're told that the cries of the people went up to God and that so many people cried out against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that God sent angels down to see essentially what all the big deal was about. Why would he rain down sulfur fire from heaven upon them? God judged because he loved Lot. Because he loved the sojourners and the travelers who had stayed in Sodom and Gomorrah and had been oppressed, had been taken advantage of. And so God judged because he was holy, yes, but also because he loved. There's a Croatian theologian by the name of Mirslav Volf. Mirslav Volf talks about how you could only think God was a God who did not judge in our present context. He writes this in a book called Exclusion and Embrace. My thesis is that practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular among many in the West, but imagine speaking to a people as I have. By the way, Miroslav Wolf survived and came from a people who survived massive, 100-year-long civil war. So he says this, Imagine speaking to a people as I have, whose cities and villages have first been plundered and then burned, they have been leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. And if you point at them, and they say, Should not and you say, We should not retaliate. The question is, why not? What will ever keep them from retaliating? From continuing a cycle of violence and war, what will keep them from doing that? I say this, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by a belief that God will refuse to take up his sword. And then he says this, it takes a quiet suburb for the other thesis to take place. It takes a quiet suburb that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die. Like other pleasant captivities of a liberal mind, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, then God would not be worthy of our worship. By the way, Miroslav Volf and I disagree on a ton of things sociologically and politically, but he and I have common ground here. If we are to ever not degrade our world into you hurt me so I come back and hurt you and it's an eye for an eye until the entire world is blind, if we are to avoid that, the only way is to look at a God and say, vengeance is not mine, saith Tyler. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He will judge and he will judge with a justice that is perfectly timed and is perfectly fit. If it's up to me, I will either go overboard and thus victimize the other, or I will underserve justice, and it will not have taken place. But God is perfect in his pursuit of justice. Noah is spared from a wicked generation by the flood. Lot is spared from the consequences of living amongst the Sodomites by the rain of fire. And by the way, this is an example. These are examples and themes that are common throughout Scripture. The Israelites in the Exodus are saved by the judgment of of plagues upon Pharaoh and his people, but mostly upon the closing of the Red Sea upon Pharaoh's army. The Israelites are rescued from slavery again and again by God's judgment through judges against his enemies. The remnant of faithful Israel will be saved from the unfaithfulness and idolatry of the rest of the nation by God's judgment upon the Israelites. And the Israelites will be saved from captivity by God's judgment upon their captors. And fundamentally, by the way, this theme comes in clearest view when we start to contrast it and see how God flips the script in the ultimate act of salvation through judgment. When instead of putting his judgment down upon a people fallen and sinful, he himself comes down and takes the judgment for our sins upon him. How were the Israelites saved? God judged the Egyptians. How were they saved? He judged the Canaanites. How were they saved? He judged the Ammonites. Christian, how are you saved? He judged your sin on the cross of Christ. Salvation through judgment is one of the through lines of Scripture. And so when we think about why God judges, why does he judge? Because he is holy and he cannot let sin go unpunished. And he also judges because he deeply loves you. So what do we do while we wait for God's judgment? Both God's judgment upon false teachers and God's final judgment. We seek to live lives worthy of the gospel. I don't want this to descend into moralistic therapeutic deism because living lives worthy of Jesus' life is a fool's errand. It is a failed task and ultimately it is also a false teaching. But what I want to encourage you to do is live lives worthy of the gospel to which you have been called. To seek to be holy, not in necessarily the way of moral purity, but setting ourselves apart from the world. Saying, I will not do things the way that culture says I will. I will not do things the way the world says I will because I believe in Jesus Christ. And so to mirror his holiness, I will set myself apart as well. Now, There are a couple of different types of people who I think hear me say that. I think there's a good chance all five of these types are in this room and are represented. One type we could call the ready. It's the new year, you're a go getter. You have come into this and you've thought, I've thought out my Bible reading plan, here's how I'm going to improve my prayer life. I am ready. Let's live lives worthy for the gospel. I want you to know that I am grateful and thankful for you. and in fact, I would love to talk to you and figure out how we can get you plugged in, how we can get you uh, how we can buttress you with certain resources and helps in order for you to make this year of 2022 a year of living after and pursuing God and holiness. But I also think there's some in here who we might think of as the weary. 2022 has already been a difficult year. 2020 was hard and chaotic, but it was hard and chaotic for everyone. 2021 might not have gotten much better, and you've started 2022, and like Jim said a few weeks ago, it's 2-T-O-O, not 2-T-W-O. And you think, oh, and now Tyler's going to get up here and tell me I've got to read my Bible more, and I've got to pray more, and I just feel so burdened and so weary. And one of my favorite passages in Scripture is the following. Come to me, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Matthew 11:28 through30. If you hear me, if you think about judgment, if you think about reading God's word, if you think about getting into it, and you just think, "I feel so heavy weary, so heavy laden, feel like I'm on a treadmill that does not end. Here's what I want you to do. If you've got one of those ribbons in your Bible, I want you to bookmark it at Matthew 11:28. 28. And here's what I would say. Just over the course of the next month, don't try and do something massively ambitious. Just simply take each morning at some point, open it up there, and just read those three sentences. And hear your Lord and your Savior saying to you, if you are weary, if you are heavy laden, come to me, my yoke is easy. I am not legalistic, I will not put things on your shoulders that are unnecessary. In fact, even the burden of your sin, I will take upon myself if you simply trust me each day. If you believe that Christ is sufficient. So if you feel weary, just take that little ribbon in your Bible and stick it right there. If you think you can do a little bit more than that, We have tons of copies of this book, Gentle and Lowly, about how Christ, though holy, though other than, though morally perfect, is gentle with us. He is lowly, humbling himself to come to us. And we would love to give you a free copy of this book if you think, hey, that would help me. So we've got a cart right out there, a welcome cart. It's got stacks of these books in it. Feel free to take one. And I hope you find it encouraging. Another group of people who might be in this room we could think of as the wayward. You've come back to church because it's your New Year's resolution to start taking your faith seriously, get back on track, but life, maybe through a bad relationship or change in circumstances or location, has thrown you off what you would normally be doing and you now feel like you're disconnected from God. You feel like it's been a while since you've been living for God and you feel wayward. And you're trying to figure out, how do I get back on the right path. To you, I want you to hear this. We are so happy you are here. I personally would love to talk to you and figure out what do we need to do to help you get there. This is not a church where we just all pretend to be clean, upstanding, good Christians with no problems. This is a church where we recognize that people come from all sorts of situations, trials, and struggles, and we want to help you along the journey. We want to help you understand what it looks like to learn about Jesus, to love like Jesus, and to live for Jesus. And so please, come find me, come find another member of our staff, and just let us know, hey, I am trying to get back on the right path here. There's nothing that would give me more joy than to be able to have that conversation with you today. There's a fourth and a fifth group that might be in this room. To be honest, these two groups of people might be difficult to tell apart, so I'll address them at the same time. The lazy and the lost. Jim addressed the lazy earlier in our series through 2 Peter when he said that we are to make every effort in our pursuit of Christ. And some of you have heard the news of free grace, that the grace of salvation from the Lord Jesus Christ does not cost a thing. And you've said, great, I'll take it. Punch the card, done. And you are not, as Peter admonished us earlier in this letter, supplementing your faith with virtue, your virtue with self-control. You're not building upon what Christ has already done in you. And from outside, your life looks lazy, and we might have a difficult time distinguishing the lazy from the lost. Let me say this to those of you who might feel lazy. I am not saying these things because they are my opinions. There's nothing that I get out of this. In fact, if you think that I might be saying this simply because it's some sort of the protocol here at Journey Church and there's something in it for me, what I would love to do is direct you towards another church where you can go and plug in there so that you know I don't have a dog in this fight. Why do I want you to, if you're lost, believe, and if you're lazy, make every effort? Why do I want that? Because I also care about you. I don't know you the way God knows you. I don't know what struggles you have in your life, but when I think about people who might suffer because they either have not pursued wholeheartedly Christ or because they have walked away and wandered away from Christ, my heart breaks. Christ is not some killjoy, and his rules are not some sort of burdensome obligation. In fact, Jesus himself said in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. You only get that when you run after Christ. The fullness of life that he intended for us to be totally honest, I don't want you to miss out whether you're here with us at Journey Church, which I would love, or whether we can get you plugged into another church just so you know that I don't have any ulterior motives in this. So I don't know who you are. I don't know if you're the ready. I don't know if you're the wayward. I don't know if you're the weary. I don't know if you're the lost. And I don't know if you're the lazy. I don't know where you are. Here's what I know. We worship a holy God. We worship a holy God who will judge And he will judge both to uphold his character and he will judge those who are hurt and harmed by sin. Or he will judge because he loves those who are hurt and harmed by sin. And so that's where I wanted to leave you guys with today. That we can be spared from the judgment of God by the love of God in Christ. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, your name is holy. We are amazed as we look at the scriptures and see the pictures of your great love. You and your love sustain us, though you are an all consuming fire. And so we ask you to help keep us from false teaching. We ask that you correct us if it quickly emerges. We repent of false teachings we have believed and of sinful hearts which desire particular things that lead us into false teaching. And I pray for the journey, church, this year. I pray that this new year might be a year of seeing you more clearly for us, seeing you for as you are, not as we in our finite and sinful minds recast you to be. And so we ask these things in the name of your Son, in whom we find grace to be clothed in your righteousness. Amen.